Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. And as you know, this is the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And on today's show, I wanted to focus on Indianapolis again, but this is not a market spotlight per se. It's really just another update on the market and what has been going on because we have had some changes there. And although Indianapolis is a perennial market for us, we've been there for probably 10 years, if not longer. We have had some changes there. We've brought in a couple of new providers that we've been working with for about a year or more, and things have been going very, very well. Clients are very happy. We've had many people fly out there to visit with our team, kick the dirt, see properties, see neighborhoods, and they're always very impressed. So I thought, well, let's just uh, take another look at the indie market and bring one of our providers on. So today I'm going to bring on a gentleman by the name of Josh. He is one of the team members that we work with out there who manages a large team of people. So Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Marco. Appreciate you having me today. I'm happy to have you on because I think uh, it's a good time to take a quick look at Indy again. And uh, like I had said, you know, it's a perennial market. The numbers always seem to make sense there. And uh, there's a constant flow of inventory, which I think is very important. So before we kind of jump in to asking that all important question of why invest in Indianapolis, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your partner, Scott, and how you guys got involved in real estate? Okay. Well, um, yeah, Scott and I uh, worked together at a firm in the late 90s was our first uh, experience together. Um, We managed a high volume of uh, investment property, generally distressed sale management, um, and we were acquiring properties all over the state, more of a C-class or inner city type property situation rather than, um, you know, what we focus on today. And um, we we did it at a pretty high volume. We had probably at one one point in time over 500 properties under management, and um, we were acquiring somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 40 properties a month. Um, and it was just a you know a, a different time, um, you know, different market uh, than it is today. And we found that it wasn't as reliable and as you know as certain as what we're hoping for. Um, but, uh, you know, that was when we first got together, um, we've been working together, various different operations, uh, over several years. And, uh, I personally, um, spent, uh, we all know what happened in 2008. Um, you know, everything kind of went sideways in most markets, Indianapolis, um, it, it, it had an issue, but we didn't really have it as, you know, the effects nationwide. Uh, we definitely had increased amount of foreclosures and, um, that's kind of what I spent my time focusing on. Um, we manage properties for Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, um, HUD, Chase, all of the big firms. And uh, we we really focused on the management and sales side of that for probably about eight years. And then um, my partner, Scott, was building, um, building a, this company. And um, where there was a defined need in around 2010 uh, for turnkey investment property providers. Uh, there was just uh, a lot of interest in people, uh, you know, or in our market looking to purchase quality investment properties. And there were very little 
providers out there that actually knew the market, knew that had the systems in place and were able to kind of produce it on a monthly or, you know, systematic basis. And so, um, uh, our company started in 2010. Um, I kind of watched it from the sidelines and kind of helped, um, you know, things get started and get off the ground and, uh, make sure that things were, you know, all was, all was well. And then, um, I joined the, joined the team in, uh, I think late 2011, 2012. Um, and, um, we've been going ever since. There's a saying, you know, find a need and fill it. And you certainly found that need and filled it. Well, yeah, I mean, um, it was pretty, you know, it's pretty amazing as to what we've built. Uh, looking back, you know, in the beginning, it was, you know, kind of a, there were some, some people in town that were working with some various providers. And we just kept hearing stories about, um, you know, people doing properties in the inner city and bad experiences and that kind of thing. And uh, we knew, we knew what not to do um, and we knew how to do it right. And uh, so it just made a whole bunch of sense. Um so since 2010, we've done about, excuse me, we've done about 500 properties. Um, we currently manage about 500 properties. Uh, the majority of them are uh, properties that we have acquired, rehabbed, and um, marketed, and then we have managed them after the sale. And we currently manage those 500 for, I'd say, about 250 to 270 investors. So when we think of Indianapolis, we know that it's the capital of the state of Indiana. It ranks as one of the cleanest and safest city in the country. Um, it's about the 12th largest city in the country. And what's interesting is that you are centrally located in the Midwest, and about 65% of the entire U.S. population lives within a 700-mile radius of your city. So that makes you, in effect, a logistical hub. Tell us about Indianapolis at a high level. Why would someone want to invest there? And what are the economic drivers and reasons that someone like myself or our listeners should be looking at Indianapolis as an option? Well, you know, to answer your first part of the question, we've been hearing that more and more from, you know, various employers, um, we've a lot of tech, um, a lot of tech has been moving in Indianapolis for its logistical location. Um, you've got a lot of firms that, uh, you know, are managing clients on the East and West coast. Uh, this makes sense as a, you know, for location, but I think more importantly, you've got, um, the quality of housing, the cost of living, the cost of housing all associated with that. So, um, in Indianapolis, I think one of the main reasons why anybody, uh, regardless of an investor or just an owner occupant would want to, you know, we want to purchase uh, real estate in this market would be, you know, the cost uh, associated with the quality. Um, you know, I, various different markets all over the country. Um, you know, I think you, dollars per square foot um, and the quality of that dollars per square foot are just superior as compared to, to many other big cities. Um, and then looking at it as an investment side of things, um, Indianapolis can produce, you know, systematically and continually properties that are that, you know, kind of that 1% rent to price ratio. Um, and we can do that on a newer property basis. So our typical product is a 1995 build that's either 1995 or newer. And uh, we can generally capture that, uh, you know, 1% to price ratio all the way up to about $150,000. So I think the quality of our product, uh, the quality of our, uh, you know, home after rehab with a tenant in place producing income is just superior as compared to many other markets. 
Yeah, that's pretty powerful. Uh, job seems to be at the heart of everything. And to be able to consistently produce a 1% RV ratio is, uh, you know, speaks volumes for a particular market. It, it just shows you that rents are in lockstep with price appreciation. And, and as far as that job growth goes, I, I just did a Google search here before we got on here. And there's a report that was produced by JLL. Um, I guess it's a law firm. And they were showing a chart here showing that Indianapolis has a 41.2% employment growth in the tech sector, which seems to be a rapidly growing sector of your economy. So from 2001 to 2015, tech employment in Indianapolis grew 41.2%. This is the eighth largest job growth for the sector in the country. So that's pretty amazing. I don't know how many jobs that creates, but I'm sure it's well into the thousands. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that um, not only in the tech sector have we seen the growth. I mean, we we rely on just a very, you know, a real wide um, base here. So you've got, a, you know, many different aspects. Um, when you when you look at us logistically, you've you've got um, they, they call it in Apples the crossroads of America because we have Interstate 65 and Interstate 70 crossing each other. Um, so you've got a, a logistical hub there for warehousing and, and you know, obviously trucking and logistics companies. Um, and then we have a huge huge uh, medical and hospital and employment sector. And so we've had growth in every different sector. And I think if, you know, you had to really look at it, um, you know, from black and white and, and, you know, as you say, from a high level, um, it probably attributes back to the housing prices, the cost of living, and then, you know, rent prices. You've got a lot of millennial uh, age group people that aren't looking to purchase houses. And, you know, our rents um, have, you know, stayed very competitive, um, you know, comparatively uh, all over. So if you look at the, you know, the gross rent in Indianapolis is, you know, around $900. And, you know, the, I think that $900 comparatively where what that will get you uh, around the United States, $900 will get you a very nice property um, here in Indianapolis. And so that, I think that that, you know, kind of attributes to all of the growth. So I guess it goes without saying the rental market is is very healthy and strong. You can lease up a property fairly quickly. No, you know we um we focus even on a higher end than that. Um, so you know if you look at um, our market and what you know what we specialize, our average rent here is twelve hundred dollars a month. And if you just do a search with our you know our local MLS and you look for open um, in, in our metropolitan area, in our, our market, and you look for open and available uh, rental properties, that'll lead you at the top uh, 5% of, of rents available. And uh, what I mean by that is that, you know, after about uh, $1,500, $1,700, um, people, you know, just, there, there aren't a lot of rental opportunities out there. Uh, most, the majority of the time, people are going to buy a property at that price point because, you know, they can. Uh, property is affordable. So um, what that what we find is that, you know, generally the the client, the the tenant that we work with is going to be of higher quality. If you're dealing with the top five or top seven percent of renters in your marketplace, generally, you're going to be able to, you know, have some some quality tenants. And so that's, um, you know, been our main focus since beginning is that, um, you know, we, we will focus on properties that, um, you know, acquire good tenants. Um, we're generally located in neighborhoods, family oriented. Um, we are usually situated on the outside. Um, if you look at 
Indianapolis as a loop um, around it. You know, if you look at the um, 465 interstate that, that surrounds the city, our properties are going to generally be located on the outside of that, more in a suburban type situation. And so we really attract quality tenants and uh, tenants that you can depend on. Do you consider that the mid-market? Well, um, you know, the, uh, I talked about the numbers, so yes, we would consider it the mid, mid to upper market because we really don't have a lot of higher-end rentals. And the problem in that market, um, although we would love to, you know, produce higher-end rentals, the, the 1% to price ratio just kind of drops off in Indianapolis at about 150 or 160000 So an investor looking to invest in Indianapolis, what would that price range be that you would recommend from an investment perspective on the low and the high side? Well, um, you know, we have two different products that we offer. So we've got um, uh, the the bread and butter, what we would typically talk about would be a 1995 or newer three to four bedroom, two and a half bath property. And it's going to generally be, be bringing rents between $1,000 and $1,300 a month. And so that property is generally going to be priced from a $100,000 to $130,000. Um, we also offer, you know, some more inexpensive product, um, and we're very selective on what, you know, what we do here. Um, generally, uh, in Indianapolis, in the inner city, you've got, um, you know, many different properties that can be situated, you know, very close to each other. But our city, three to four to five blocks can make a huge difference. And so we really try and only focus on maybe five areas of the city that we know very well. And we will offer some inexpensive properties there. And what I mean by that, you know, sometimes ranging between seventy-five and $100,000. And what you can expect for that would be a three-bedroom brick ranch built in 1950, 1960. And generally uh, that 1% to price ratio will apply there. Uh, sometimes we can actually do a little better. Um, than that in those markets, but we're very selective and generally don't have very many of those to offer um, just because once again, we're very concerned about those properties and we want to make sure it's something that we have worked the neighborhood. We're very confident in, in, in the area and we know that it'll perform as we need it to. Okay. All right. So I know with your particular company, you guys have property management in-house. It's a separate company or division, but it kind of rolls from one side of the business to another side of the business. So let me throw a curveball at you here. Some investors and clients ask us if there's any benefit to having quote unquote in-house property management and what they mean by in-house is that, you know, the, the providers and the builders that we work with actually are affiliated with or are principals of another company, which is the property management company. And so they just shuffle the paperwork from one desk to another, another office. So what are the advantages? And if there, there are any disadvantages that you want to share too, because we get this question quite often. Well, you know, I think um, anytime that you can have a seamless relationship between the, you know, we call it operations side. So where we, we source the property, we rehab it, and then we market it. Um, when you can have a seamless operation between that and management post-closing, I think that that's best. However, um, you know, we've seen it in many and heard from many clients that it, you know, it hasn't worked best in many other markets. And uh, the general stories that we hear um, is that, you know, in fact, it's not, you know, separate or it's not defined. And, um, you know, you have one company kind of doing all of it. And, um, 
you know, I, I've heard that numerous times and we've heard a lot of bad experiences where, you know, you have a client that um, purchased a property from, you know, from a group and the things went well. And then the management side, um, you know, things didn't go well. And they generally, the, the feeling was they were focused on the operation side of things where they were sourcing properties and, and marketing properties, but they weren't so focused on the management. And, um, you know, so I think it's important to, you know, really kind of vet that um, from the beginning. And um, in our circumstance, we have two separate companies under the same, uh, you know, ownership group, uh, but two separate companies, two separate licenses. Um, everything is completely separate. And um, our management side has its own employees and, and all, you know, money's received and, and things that stay within that corporation. And our operation side has its own employees and all, everything stays within that. So, um, you know, I think it's just deport, you know, important to have those defined um, roles, so to speak. Um, our management side works, you know, day in and day out with, um, you know, with our operations side um, with regard to new clients. But, you know, moving forward, it's it's on its own. And, and day to day, um, you know, as much as it's crazy to say, I personally don't have really anything to do with the day-to-day property management side of things. And, you know, it, it may sound nuts, but I, you know, I feel like it's a sign of a well-run company. Um, you know, we've got employees in place uh, doing their defined roles and um, certainly we're, we're here if needed, but we'll only get involved with the property management as needed. Okay. All right. Well, one last question. I'm going to ask you to look in your crystal ball. In the past, recent past, Indianapolis was ranked as the fourth most affordable city, and that was by Forbes. It was ranked in the top three as the, um, I guess, the best. I don't know if they called it the best, but, you know, it was the top three market for single-family rental properties, and that was by the Wall Street Journal. And Indianapolis is known as the top most stable real estate market in the U.S., and the reason people have said that is because it declined less than 7% through the uh, Great Recession of 2008. So, you know, I think that's true for a lot of linear markets, particularly down through the Midwest. So if you were to look in your crystal ball and try to tell us what you see happening in the indie market for the next one to three years, I don't know if that's a stretch, what would you tell me or what would you tell an investor? Well, you know, I, I think um, for sure any publication is going to talk about the stability. You know, over 40 years, uh, we've definitely been one, number two, number three, but generally number one um, for stability in any publication. And, you know, I think when you can have a market that, you know, we don't talk about appreciation, it's not something that we put in our performas or anything like that. Um, but when you have a a market that you can generally say, hey, for 40 years, three to five percent a year, like clockwork. Even in the 08 recession, we've recaptured on that same trajectory line of three to five percent. Um, you know, I think that there's something to be said for that. Um, you know, when you look at when you look at our market, and we, you know, we stay heavily tuned into uh, things that you know are typical indicators. Um, you know, the market right now uh, is deemed to be hot um but we don't we don't attribute that to any sort of 
you know, stuff that's not factual. You know, you've got a lot of times that you've got a market that's hot for, you know, various reasons. Um, we look at it as, you know, there's, there's definite buyers that are ready, willing and able to purchase properties. Um, our market, you know, is generally considered to be hot now because there's been a, a, a downtake in inventory, available inventory. So we've had um, just over even in the last year, we've had about 5% reduction in available inventory which has kind of helped prices push upward a little bit and help, uh, you know, things uh, kind of raise a little bit. But as far as that goes, we are talking, you know, 3% from, from last year. So anytime we have uh, market indicators that, you know, are suggesting change in our market, it's still very low. You're talking 3% here, 5% there. And what I always circle back to is that stability. And, um, you know, uh, Indianapolis is well known for uh, very stable property values, stable rents, um, you know, stable marketplace. And so if I had to uh, look into the crystal ball, so to speak, you'd you'd say that as employment gains, as population, you know, grows here, um, you're going to have a growth in real estate. But we're certainly not going to be in these other markets where you've seen, you know, 10 percent, 15 percent. 20% appreciation, and then along with that, depreciation. And uh, we, we just, that's not something that we've ever had. So I would have to say you can continue on the on the plan of being very stable. Um, you can look at rent, you know, rent prices, You're generally talking about a, you know, a increase of one to 2%, um, you know, a year across the board. Um, you know, so nothing that's, uh, you know, very, very extremely exciting. Um, but, you know, something that's always been progressing upward and very, very stable. Sometimes the boring markets are the best markets. And I'm glad to hear that you mentioned stability and you don't talk about appreciation too much because stability is the key characteristic of a linear market. You you want just slow, smooth, steady growth over time. And I, I think, you know, the markets that we're in in the Midwest down through towards the southeast uh, really reflect that. So um, I think Indy is, is a good, quote-unquote, boring market. I'm not implying that it's a boring city, but, you know, it's just a smooth and steady market. Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to make it out to be that it is just completely stable. We've had plenty of clients that, you know, invested with us in 2010, 2011 that, you know, we're able to capture on some significant gains. Um, you know, we've got a lot of times where you'll have um, different parts, you know, of our area that, um, you know, supply goes down and, um, you know, you've got, you know, an uptick in price for that style of property or that area or, or, you know, or whatever. And so, you know, we've had plenty of clients that have been able to capture on higher appreciation than that three to 5%. Um, but you know, it's not something that, that, that's just all part of the puzzle. Um, you know, and that's not something that we again, talk about, um, you know, our, our, general thing that we like to focus on is the stability and rents and the quality of tenant. And, um, you know, as long as that uh, continues, then, you know, we, we've got a very, very good thing, but, um, you know, we, we, we've definitely had clients that have cap capitalized on some appreciation upswings or, you know, different areas of our city that, you know, have become much more desirable, um, you know, over time, we've got still a lot of building, um, starting happening right now. And so, you know, you've got kind of an upswing and uh, desire for different, you know, different areas. And so that always brings, um, you know, appreciation as well. And so, 
you know, we've got a lot of different good things going on with, um, you know, employment with growth here in India. And it's just something that's pretty exciting. Um, we don't see it changing anywhere in the near future. And that's, that's, uh, uh, probably the most exciting part. Well, that was a pretty good update. Uh, Josh, is there anything that I did not ask you that maybe I should have, or anything else you want to add or comment on? No, you're always very thorough, Marco. We, uh, we appreciate the opportunity to work with you guys. I know, um, you know, everybody works with your, your counselors and, um, you know, we work with uh, a large number of clients, and generally the, the folks that come uh, by way of, of you um, are very educated and, have, uh, you know, we, we think very highly of the counselors. They, they do a great job of kind of, you know, working with us and vetting, you know, vetting properties and areas and, and different things. So if I had anything to say, um, you've done a great job in putting together a, a great team. And um, I would I would hope your folks utilize utilize them in every way possible. Thanks, Josh. Those are very kind words, and that speaks volumes for our listeners because it just goes to show that our listeners do want to learn everything they can and educate themselves about investing and property management and investing in real estate and all that good stuff. So thank you for all that. Sure. Well, we're gonna definitely uh, keep working with you. You guys have been great. Um, if anybody listening wants more information about the Indianapolis market or the inventory that's out there, we do post that up on our website. You can call our office, talk to one of our investment counselors. We can have a strategy session with you just to help you out. And um, and I think that's it. So, Josh, I appreciate you being on the show today. Yeah, no problem, Marco. I appreciate the time and anything we can do to help. You know how to reach us. Great. Thanks again. Okay, thanks. Okay, I'm going to get to some listener questions here in about 30 seconds, so just stay tuned. Are you having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the U.S. Our simple, proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Get your free copy of the ultimate guide to passive real estate investing at noradarealestate.com slash guide. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com slash guide. Okay, I want to share an interesting listener question that I had just the other day. I spoke to a couple in Hawaii that own a rental property. It's actually two units on one particular lot. Um, but I asked them, I said, how much is this property worth? And they said it's worth about $600,000. And then I asked them, how much do you rent it for? And they said $2,850, which is just under $3,000. So, you know, they're sitting on a property that they own free and clear uh, that's worth about $600,000. And they have about a 0.4% rent to value ratio, RV ratio. And as you know, we like to stick to properties that are around that 1% mark, higher if possible, but anywhere from 0.8.9 on up, ideally 1%. So here they are, equity rich, uh, generating about $2,300 a month net on the rent from that property. They own their home, uh, although they have a mortgage on it, but they, you know, they have a home, uh, so they don't rent. And they're basically just using the income from that property to pay their mortgage on their home. So they asked me what would be a good strategy as far as that property. Well, obviously the first option is to do nothing and just keep the property and sit on it and collect your $2,300 a month net cash flow. But I showed them two ways where they could leverage that equity into larger cash flows and higher returns. 
because there really is no such thing as a return on equity. Equity is dormant. It sits in your property and it doesn't really produce anything for you. And it actually poses a problem for you because there's downside risk. We all know that Hawaii is very expensive. It's possibly overpriced, as are many markets along the coasts of the United States. So what would happen if this $600,000 property uh, started to go down to 550, 500? Well, you're just going to watch your equity vaporize. It vanishes, and there's nothing you could do about it. You can't stop it now. If you are trying to sell this property, you're really chasing for a buyer in a down market. And all you're going to be doing is uh, giving up the equity you could have tapped into. So one option I proposed or presented to them to think about, let's just say they sold it and they netted $500,000. And they were doing this tax-free through a 1031 exchange. They could, and I'm using very round numbers here, acquire five single-family homes in another market priced around $100,000 each. So five times 100,000 gives you that 500,000 in equity. And that should generate about $5,000 a month gross rental income because I'm looking at this as a 1% rent to value ratio. So now you take that $5,000 a month in gross rent, you subtract 10% for management. And I'm just gonna take a round number here, $500, another 10% for uh, maintenance repairs and vacancy allowance. Although that might be a tad low, it is sufficient enough to work with in this example. So what we have here is about 4,000 a month in net income. So what they've done is they've exchanged that equity into more property in, in another market and gone from 2,300 a month net to approximately $4,000 per month net. Now, if we subtract property taxes and insurance, we come out to about $3,500 per month net. That is after all expenses. So we've gone from about $2,300 a month to $3,500 a month in cash flow. They still have their same equity. All they've done is they've moved it from one property into five properties, but that equity is still there. They've reduced or potentially eliminated their downside risk as far as that market coming down and eroding that equity that they have built up over the years in that duplex. And now they stand to be in a better market uh, with potentially better long-term prospects. And now they have five properties with larger cash flow. That was scenario one. Scenario two is, again, hypothetically, they could take that equity and leverage it. And let's just say they went with a 50% loan, whether it's a portfolio loan, conventional financing, whatever the case is. Let's just say they opted to only finance 50% of the acquisition. They could theoretically go up to 80% if they qualify. But now we have a situation where we have the ability to take that equity and purchase 10, not five, but 10 properties of $100,000 each, each renting for $1,000 a month. So now what we've done is we've increased our net operating income from about $3,500 to $7,000 a month. Now, the one thing we need to deduct here, obviously, is the debt service. There's obviously a cost to financing 50% of that acquisition. So now that we have $7,000 in net operating income, that represents everything that property will produce before paying off your debt service. So now what do we have? If we take that $7,000 a month in net operating income from those 10 properties and subtract 
$2,684 in a mortgage payment on that $500,000 at 5%, we end up with a little over $4,300 a month. So let's compare. We now have $4,300 per month in cash flow versus the $2,300 a month they are getting now in net dollars. So they've practically doubled their net cash flow from this property. And the reason I bring up this example and I wanted to talk about this specific scenario is because a lot of people find themselves in this situation where they have one or more rental properties that have a fair amount of equity sitting dormant, doing nothing for them. And that's fine if that's the position you want to be in. However, if it makes sense for you to expand your portfolio and increase your monthly cash flow, while at the same time potentially lowering the downside risk because you happen to be in a cyclical market or an overheated market where property values are far above their long-term mean, their long-term average, then this is something you should consider, if nothing more, just strategically, even if you don't increase your cash flow. Let's just say it's a cross-the-board wash, which I highly doubt it would be, but if that's the case, then what you're doing is you're really diversifying your portfolio and you're taking that equity out and putting it into safer property assets located in more stable markets or potentially markets that have greater upside potential. So that's something we can discuss one-on-one -on -one because... I can only talk in generalities here without knowing your individual scenario and, and the specifics of what you have and what you're trying to do. It's very hard for us to give you exact numbers, but something you can talk to us about. Now, here's a related question from a listener named Chad who writes in and says, I have two investment houses. We bought these as foreclosed homes on a low price. So they are now worth about double what we bought them for. We learned about leveraging money after we bought these and we had paid cash for them. One of the houses we lived in for four years. My question is, should we turn this house into a rental or sell it since we don't have to pay capital gains because we lived in it and take the money to buy two or three rentals and leverage our money? I feel like I'm answering my own question, but the only reason we're hesitating is I think it would be a good rental. The other issue is since we bought them so low, the depreciation factor is almost non-existent to offset our regular income. Thank you for your thoughts. Okay, there's a number of things in here. Uh, first and foremost is this. Uh, you haven't given me any numbers as far as what the property value is or how much you could rent for. So not knowing that, I can't say whether it makes sense or not. However, what we do know is you have two properties, free and clear, you're living in one and you're considering selling or moving and using those as rentals or potentially selling them and, and leveraging up. Well, you have to first of all look at what they're worth and what you could rent them for. Uh, even if you do that, and let's just say it makes sense, you can get 1% uh, rent to value ratio or higher, then it might make sense to keep them. However, if you're in an overpriced market or there's a lot of downside risk, you might want to consider looking to do a 1031 tax-deferred exchange out of those properties, especially if you had purchased them, uh, I don't know what your purchase price was, but at a low purchase price, and now you're depreciating something that could be increased by moving your equity into new properties, and now you start the clock all over on that 27.5-year uh, straight-line depreciation, it might be in your best interest. So now you have the depreciation on these new properties, assuming that's what you did, 
And you would obviously be buying smart. You would be buying in markets that make sense on properties that have that 1% rent to value ratio. And so now you know you have good rates of return and good cash flow on those properties. Now, depending on how much equity you have in those, you could obviously leverage that up to four properties, six properties. I'm not sure because again, I don't know what the market value is on these properties. But it sounds like just at a very high level that you may be better off moving, whether you rent or buy, that's another question, but taking the equity from these two properties, leveraging them up into a larger portfolio of income producing properties in one or two different markets and, uh, and then leveraging them with you know whatever makes sense to you, 70, 75 or 80% loan to value. And then you're just putting the 20, 25% down. So, I think, Chad, if you want to get in touch with one of our investment counselors and just present the numbers and, and the market that you're in, uh, we can give you a more detailed answer because right now it's it's kind of hard to get into the weeds with you without knowing those, those specifics. However, it's similar to the previous example with the uh, couple in Hawaii that have a lot of equity. They're equity rich and, and sort of cash flow poor where they could about double their uh, cash flow and still have... Um, the depreciation tax benefit as well as lower their downside risk. So you may be in the exact same position. Anyway, I hope that helps. It's a kind of a general answer to a general question. Here's one more question for today and then I'll take some more questions next week because I have uh, a bunch of them backed up here. So I apologize for the uh, delay. But uh, Patrick writes in and says, uh, best way to get started in real estate. I only have 4,000 in cash and I only have about 1,000 per month in disposable income. So what is the best way to obtain a rental property? Well, that's um, unfortunately not a tough question to answer, but I feel bad because you're just not there yet. And here's what I mean. The best thing you could be doing right now is investing in yourself. Educate yourself, spend the money if you have to, but buy the books and the programs, and I'm not talking about $30,000 coaching programs here. I'm talking about the vast amount of free knowledge and education out there on the internet, as well as inexpensive books, $20, $30, whatever they are. Just continue to educate yourself as you build up your reserves. The best thing to be doing is seeing how you can increase your income, whether that's through your existing job and or through building a sideline business, a part-time business, you really need to increase your inflow, your cash flow, the income that you have available to redeploy in investments. Because if you don't make that change, it doesn't matter how much you budget or how much you save, you're not going to save enough, fast enough to be able to invest in rental property. Now, I say that to encourage you, not to discourage you, because the reality is, is you need to increase your income. Now, if you are kind of stuck in a situation where you just are not able to do that right away because of time or personal circumstance, then what I might suggest is you try to follow that same path and continue to educate yourself and potentially seek out a partner. A partner that is someone you know and trust, whether they are a family member, a close friend, someone where you can work together and maybe you can find some deals. Now, you can start building some income just through real estate itself. You can become a wholesaler, pick some neighborhoods, and drive those streets and see if you can find distressed properties or distressed seller situations where you can acquire properties that you simply put under contract. You'll need very little money, if any at all, 
uh, you tie up the property and then you have a buyer ready on the other end who's a rehabber, someone willing to buy that property. And all you do is you take that contract and assign it to that buyer or that investor who now pays you whatever it may be, a thousand, two thousand, five thousand, ten thousand dollars just for the assignment of that contract because you have found the deal and you're providing that deal for them. There's a little more work involved in that, but it is not that complicated. It's really more about the time you're putting in, not so much the capital resources that you need. So that's just one way to bootstrap where you are. Now, if that helps, great. Um, but again, you know, just you, you're just not in a situation where you can pull the trigger just yet. But I know you'll get there, and I wish you luck, Patrick. All right, well, that's it for today. I appreciate you guys listening. Um, if you have any questions, be sure to send them to the Ask Marco link on our website, PassiveRealEstateInvesting.com. Um, and if you need to talk to one of our investment counselors about your particular situation, just go ahead and give them a call at our office. Remember to subscribe on iTunes if you haven't done so. Leave us a rating and review if you don't mind. That helps us spread the word, and I greatly appreciate that. And if you uh, send an email to reviews at noradarealestate.com, I will send you a brand new Keep Calm and Invest On coffee mug. And I have another shipment of them here, so I'm ready to send them out. Anyway, just make sure that you send us your mailing address so I know where to drop that in the mail too. Anyway, thanks for listening and we'll see you guys on the next episode. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please contact the host.